Good evening and welcome to the National World War I Museum and Memorial here in Kansas City, Missouri. My name is Laura Vogt. I am the Curator of Education. Two weeks after the armistice was signed, Kansas Cityans came together and they wanted to create a memorial for those who lived through and those who died in the World War. And in 1920, they raised $2.5 million to build the structure that we are in this evening. Uh, now, if any of you uh, would like to raise $2.5 million in 10 days for us today, we'd be happy to discuss this afterwards. Uh, or uh, the $37 million that it translates to in today's dollar. Uh, in 1926, this uh, beautiful Art Nouveau place opened. Uh, it was dedicated uh, to those who had the courage, honor, patriotism, and sacrifice to defend their nation, and also in the hope of a just and lasting peace, which is our conversation this evening. We're going to be discussing that U.S. entry into World War I in April of 1917. In the first part of our conversation, we're going to be looking at the U.S. in 1914 when the war broke out in Europe. Then we'll be looking at Wilson's re-election in November of 1916, the decision to go to war, and finally, the U.S. at war. And our panel this evening uh, is made up of two speakers. Professor Jay Sexton is the inaugural Kinder Endowed Chair in Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. Now, he has, for the last 20 years, been at the Oxford University, but you all in this hometown crowd might also like to know that now at the University of Missouri, he originated at the University of Kansas, so regardless of what side you're on, uh, please greet him warmly and again, ask him his questions. Thank you. And you might have seen Dr. Jennifer Keene on The American Experience. Uh, she has been a key figure in much of the US uh, and the global commemoration of the First World War. She has been uh, working with the 1914-1918 Encyclopedia Project. She is the current president for the Society of Military History. And she is the professor and chair of the Department of History at Chapman University. Now tonight, to introduce each of uh, the discussion topics that I mentioned, we're gonna be playing excerpts from a new podcast docudrama by Chrome Radio about the US entry into World War I. And it is called Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade. The drama was generously supported by the Rothmere Foundation, whose ancestor, Lord Northcliffe, had close connections with the United States and who, in 1917, was to take over from Foreign Secretary Balfour as head of the United Kingdom War Mission to the US. Using contemporary diaries, letters, and newspaper reports, Enter the Peace Broker brings America's journey into World War I vividly alive. We discover a compelling story of duplicity, diplomatic intrigue, and great power politics. And uh, for those of you that are interested in listening more to this, because we know that did sound really good, it is free for you. You can access it via iTunes, and it includes introductions from Professor Sir Hugh Strong, script consultant to the production. So 
let's get started. I'd like to introduce our first clip and excerpt from the docudrama. This comes from the opening of Enter the Peace Broker. It is February 1915. Europe has been at war since the previous August, and Colonel House, President Wilson's right-hand man, is on his way to London on an unofficial peace mission. Daily Mail, February the 2nd, 1915. The crew of the steamship that was sunk by German submarine U-21 on Saturday have returned home. The submarine, commanded by Lieutenant Otto Hersing, is still in the Irish Sea. And three other submarines, all of them obviously German, have been reported in St. George's Channel to the south of the waters where U-21 began her exploits. The Berliner Tageblatt, commenting on the attack, said, the German people will hear the news with great pleasure, as England seems to place her main hope on the starving out of Germany. As they deal with us, so we must deal with them. February the 6th, 1915, on board the Lusitania. The voyage is soon to come to an end. It looked as if we might perish, so fierce was the storm. Despite our great size, the ship tossed about like a cork in the rapids. This afternoon, as we approached the Irish coast, our captain decided to hoist the American flag, and this created much excitement. Though the Lusitania is a fine ship, we don't claim it as one of our own but the captain had become greatly alarmed at the possible threat of a German submarine and raised the flag in order to reduce the chance that we'd be torpedoed. Because of his concern, he mapped out a complete program for the rescue of passengers, the launching of lifeboats, etc., etc. But under the stars and stripes, we're arriving safely. Thanks be to God. Colonel Edward House has reached Britain's shores. He's the president's right-hand man, his advisor, though he has, by choice, no ministerial position, whether he's really a colonel or not, is far certain. But his motives are good, we're told. He's here on an unofficial quest to bring peace to the world. He'll visit Paris and Berlin, as well as London, talk to politicians, talk to the great and the good. He can talk to me if he cares to. Uh, the chief here. Find out where Mr. Edward House is staying, will you? House. President Wilson's man. Just arrived. Suggest to him that a conversation with Lord Northcliffe might be high up on his agenda. When I see him, I'll tell him that we're all for peace, but not at any price. A negotiated peace sounds like defeatist talk to me. We'll win in the end. I'm certain we will. 
and my newspapers are playing a crucial role in securing victory. Uh, Jay, could you set the scene for us of 1914 in the U.S.? Absolutely. So there's divisions in 1914. I'm glad to hear that in Kansas City there's no longer divisions between KU and Mizzou. Um, that was great to hear. That's normally not the response. So. It was a warm round of applause. A absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the, what's the stage? What's the, how do we set the stage in, in 1914? Obviously, the outbreak of an epochal, transformative conflict. Um, in Europe. It's going to change the world. America is going to try not to get involved and it's not going to be able to insulate itself from the contagion. The context is not just international, I think, that we need to set the stage with. It's also the domestic context in the United States. Uh, 1914 would be the tail end of a decades-long process of industrialization, urbanization, a transformation of the nation's demography from immigration. This is the great peak period of immigration in American history, the, the three or four decades before 1914. So the United States is changing. It's not a single entity in 1914, and that is essential to understanding uh, what happens thereafter. Now, I'd make two more points about what's important in 1914? What do we need to know before we start thinking about the United States and, and its entanglement in this great conflict? The first thing that we need to know is about America's foreign policy. America's foreign policy, I would characterize in this period uh, as one of indecision, one of conflicting impulses, uh, conflicting traditions. There is no single American vision of how this very pluralistic, diverse, and gargantuan uh, nation should interact with the wider world. That's really important. In fact, there's been great debate about how America should interact with the wider world, not just in 1914, but going back. And I think the key thing you need to know is about 1898, the Spanish-American War, the moment in which the United States joins, uh, formally joins the club of uh, imperial European powers when it defeats Spain. It takes her colonial possessions, most notably the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, also Cuba, extending American influence in Central America and the Caribbean. So America is entangled as it has never had been before, is projecting its power, but this is deeply contentious and divisive at home. So there's great debate about if America should do this, if it should become a formal colonial power as Britain, France, Germany, and others had become, or if it should in some way try to roll back the clock to an earlier period in which America was allegedly isolated from the wider world, was not entangled in those ways. So there is indecision and debate at that point. The last thing to say is 1914 setting the stage it is a moment of great uncertainty across the globe. You not only have the war in Europe breaking out, you have the Mexican Revolution uh, entering a new accelerated phase. This is probably one of the most important things to know if you're going to study the United States in this period, and something that very few people today know apart from saying Pancho Villa at their favorite Mexican restaurant. But it's very important to note that Mexico has entered this moment of protracted social, political, and economic crisis 
right on America's southern border, raising all sorts of questions about how the United States should begin to assert its newfound power beyond its borders. And Jennifer, could you tell us about the, the state of the armed forces in the United States in 1914? Absolutely. I just want to first uh, say that I'm from California, so I'm neutral in the <laughs> Kansas-Missouri debates. Uh, a lot like Wilson is neutral in 1914. And I think that it's important to understand the state of the American military in 1914, in part to understand his embracement of neutrality. And just picking up on what Jay was describing in terms of how the American geopolitical situation had changed as a result of the Spanish-American War, when we think about the Army and the Navy that America has, it has the Army and the Navy that it needs to handle the kinds of responsibilities it envisioned having as a result of this transformative moment at the turn of the century. And by that, I mean that we needed an army that could guard the border with Mexico, that could un undertake some sort of police actions in the Caribbean, that could occasionally be used in domestic disputes. We had a Navy that was primarily focused on the Pacific in terms of thinking about guaranteeing our control over our Pacific Island possessions. As we probably know, in 1914, we have a, sm a relatively small peacetime army and, of course, the National Guard. And the, one of the big debates is between control of the military forces in the United States. Will it primarily be federally controlled or state controlled? But Sometimes we like to look at history looking back and then look at Americans and say, well, why weren't we more prepared in 1914? But I would make the case that in 1914, we had the military we needed for the responsibilities that we had defined for ourselves. But I would just add one other point uh, here in terms of thinking about Wilson and, and his, his decision about neutrality, which I think I've been implying is, in a sense, a practical decision. It would have been very difficult for the United States to conceive of immediately getting involved in the war in 1914. But he has another uh, practical problem, which is, of course, the composition of the people of the United States. And I think one of the most telling phrases in his neutrality address is that what the United States says and do will depend on what the American people say and do. And he understands that in 1914, there, he does not have in any respect a public opinion unified around a notion of entering this conflict. And it is a really uh, international, domestic, group that we have at that point in time. Uh, it is a, a nation of immigrants, and we have a lot of conversation about immigrants today, but 100 years ago was awfully similar as well. Could you speak to uh, the US as a community of immigrants uh, from Europe where that might have torn their loyalties in 1914? Yeah, ab absolutely. So this is one of the key points. And if anything, we, we talk about immigration today, and the percentage of the population of the United States that is foreign-born today has still not reached its historic peak, which is uh, right around at the turn of the century. It's just, just shy of 15%. It's in the upper 14 percentile um, in 1890. And there's another surge of immigration right before the Great War itself. Uh, that's coming on the heels of earlier waves of immigration, which should not be forgotten. Two of the most important ethnic immigrant groups in the Great War were those that arrived in the mid-19th century, and that is, of course, the 
Irish, and the Germans. So th they're going to be very, very important. But what's also important to realize about them, that the majority of them had been in this country now for, what, 70, 70 years. So we're talking second generation, sometimes third generation. The wave of immigrants that have arrived uh, right before the Great War breaks out in 1914, most of them are from Europe as well, but they're from different parts of Europe. They're from Southern Europe, places like Italy and Greece, and they're from Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, um, including uh, Russia, Ukraine, large Jewish populations, more Catholics, all sorts of uh, diverse immigrants coming to the United States and they are uh, first generation or maybe second generation by this time. So when Wilson's talking about the difficulty of trying to put his finger on the pulse of American public opinion, I think this is a big part of it. I would just say one more thing. It's not the only difficulty in putting the finger on the pulse because there's all sorts of conflicting identities and tribal loyalties in the United States that we still have today. So we would be very familiar with them, things like partisan affiliation, things like geographic locale. Are you from the Midwest? Are you from Kansas City? Are you from a port city on one of the oceanic coasts? And all of those things are the prisms through which people view the, the Great War as it breaks out. So it is a pluralistic, diverse society. There is no single American response to the war, and that is the essential background for the difficulties confronting the Wilson administration. I would just add to this portrait of thinking about immigrants as being such a, a key factor in American life in 1914 that part of the trends that Jay was mentioning about the world really becoming a smaller place because of steamships and revolutions in communication, that this was also a way for immigrants to stay more connected to their homelands and especially to families that were still there. So you could have generations that had been here for maybe two or three, but they had not lost touch with where they came from or with the relatives that they still had in the old world. And so I think this is an important thing for us to appreciate when we do think about how Americans respond in the period of neutrality and this diversity of responses, which is that if we had to have one unifying way that Americans respond in 1914 and 1917, it's through humanitarian aid. That no matter what immigrant group you're talking about, those immigrant groups are mobilizing within their communities to send aid back to the communities from which they originate. And part of this is political, and part of it is having a difference of opinion about who's to blame for the war and who's fighting for what. But a lot of it is about personal connections that you have. When this war unleashes a huge humanitarian crisis, refugee crisis, widows, orphans, these are personal connections that are made to these communities and Americans respond. So in that sense, we're divided, but yet united in this kind of desire to help make the situation better. And I do believe that that becomes an important foundation upon which Wilson is able to build with his idealistic language that the United States can, in fact, make a difference. Actually, here at the National World War I Museum and Memorial, we have a set of letters of Americans writing back to their German family trying to find out about how things are going and the like, as well as those efforts of humanitarians on all sides, uh, those who are trying to aid on um, the allied, those who are aiding the central powers, and there are some phenomenal posters that Americans are, are putting forth to try to rally the effort. 
I'm so glad you brought up the humanitarian effort because for so many Americans, what we know about is the Lusitania and we think of that poster, but there's so many more and so many more diverse stories. So and if we'll, I can just jump in real quick, one of the key points there is that when we think about wars and public opinion, we tend to think, okay, who do you support? Which side do you support? Are you with them or are you with them? And, and actually, in addition to this confusion, I'd say one way of characterizing American public opinion is that nobody wants the war. They want relief. They want uh, humanitarian objectives. And the mediation attempts that we've just mm -hmm. heard of is a diplomatic extension of that very attitude. As a matter of fact, Woodrow Wilson is elected in 1916 underneath uh, the slogan, he kept us out of the war, uh, which is going to uh, be what our second excerpt from uh, the docudrama is about. Here in the second episode of Enter the Peace Broker, it is November of 1916, and Wilson has just been reelected. All the streets and squares were filled to overflowing. Results were displayed everywhere by electric light and cinematograph. At first, Mr. Wilson's re-election to the presidency seemed less than certain, but then the situation began to change as results gradually came in from the West. Memoir of Edith Wilson, November 10th. Woodrow had been calm and undisturbed throughout, but I could see that the strain was beginning to tell on him. Great crowds at the station. A lady rushed forward, presented me with a fragrant cluster of violets, and said, Happiest wishes to you and to your husband, the next President of the United States. Oh, for the first time I felt confident that despite all reports to the contrary, Woodrow had been re-elected. The Times, November the 13th. Mr. Wilson gauged the temper of the country with great nicety. The people craved peace and prosperity, and under his administration, they have enjoyed peace unbroken and prosperity without example. And now, in his second term, he possesses greater freedom of action. The Germans supposed that Mr. Wilson would be defeated. They branded him as the most hated man in Germany and proposed to indulge in a ruthless submarine campaign during the last four months of his term, on the insolent assumption that he would have neither the power nor the will to challenge German action. Now that they find Mr. Wilson re-elected, they are confident that he will remain neutral, whatever Germany chooses to do. But they reluctantly confess that President Wilson remains President Wilson. He does, and we are content that it should be so. However, he may be President Wilson with a difference. Is it Hindenburg or Joffre who will wear a hero's crown? Who will be the one just like Washington when the European war is done? In my mind there's just one hero, Woodrow Wilson's name will live forevermore. For there's no doubt of it, he kept us out of it, and he's the hero of the European 
explain uh, why it was that Wilson won the election of 1916? Well, the most obvious answer is he got the most votes in electoral college. <laughs> but 1916, interestingly, we have public memories of these contested, uh, very close presidential elections, and it seems like 1916 very rarely is, is one of those, but it's absolutely one of those. It comes down to a few thousand votes on the West Coast in California uh, that trickle in, and I think we heard about uh, that in the statement there. Why does Wilson win? He wins those key swing states. The big one in this period remains what it's always been in the late 19th century and, and remains to be a swing state to this day, which is Ohio, which is revealing why he wins that state. In the bigger picture, why does he win? I think one factor you gotta zoom in on is the divisions within the ranks of the Republican Party. This is a continuation of the theme that we saw in 1912. Teddy Roosevelt ran on the Bull Moose Progressive Party ticket, splitting some of the Republicans, opening the door for a Democrat to win, the first Democrat to win since Grover Cleveland back in the late 19th century. So divisions within the Republican Party, I think, are key. But the Democrats and Wilson are building a coalition. This is not the New Deal coalition yet, but there are portents of it. The South, the West are the strongholds making inroads in the cities, immigrant communities, particularly Catholics, particularly immigrant to political machines like you have here in this city in Kansas City. Um, Wilson building on that, expanding the Democratic vote and wins a greater percentage of the popular vote in 1916 than he had in 1912. Fake news. <laughs> A thing back in the 1914-1917 era, propaganda, was it in effect? Well, clearly Wilson had sort of set out in 1914 that it depended, as I said, on who won the hearts and minds of Americans in this debate over how America should respond to the war. And so we saw right from the beginning, German and British propagandists really taking that message to heart as well. And thinking about how they could persuade Americans to see things through their point of view. The Lusitania is a perfect example of this, where you can see both sides really speaking to the American public. One side, the Germans claiming that the Lusitania was carrying munitions, that here you have a ship that's flying an American flag when it shouldn't be, that it agreed to take these women and children into a war zone with full awareness that this was a dangerous undertaking, um, versus the British who argue that this is just bloodthirsty, uncivilized type of behavior by European power. And so Americans are really being inundated with propaganda, and we would have to say that in this propaganda war, the British really are winning. They understand the American psyche better, and there are just some public opinion blows that Germany can never recover from. So 1915, we think of Lusitania, but this is also the moment when the Bryce Report is released. This is the report that details with eyewitness testimony the atrocities that the German army had committed when it invaded Belgium. And we also had the execution of Edith Cavell, so the British nurse who had been caught uh, helping allied prisoners escape in Belgium. And so these three things 
uh, coming together all at the same moment, all highlighting women and children as the true victims of these German atrocities. This is just really hard for Germany ever to recover from with sort of reasoned arguments about international law and why it should be, they should be allowed to use submarines. And this is just too legalistic an explanation in contrast. In 1916, was the U.S. Armed Forces ready for war? I made the point that in 1914 we had really the Army and Navy we needed, and now by 1916 you can see there's also some uh, movements crystallizing within the United States, both the preparedness movement that argues we should be making some preparations in the event that we needed to fight in this war, and then an equally strong movement, the pacifist movement, which saw any move to strengthen the military as a sort of slippery slope that would inevitably get us into war. And it's important to understand how strong both these movements are when we look at what the U.S. does in 1916, where it does make some small incremental steps to strengthening the military, but these are compromise measures. So we have a small incremental increase planned in the regular army to get us up to 175,000 men, so still nothing dramatic. And we have increased federal supervision of the National Guard to improve their training. Probably the most important thing that we do is we create the Council of National Defense, which allows the government to start surveying its economy and its economic resources. Because as we know, the economic resources are going to be an important way that we fight this war. Absolutely. And as you all came into the museum this evening, uh, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, you actually passed right by the Kansas City Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was uh, just a, a newly formed organization. How important was U.S. funding uh, to the Allied war effort and uh, the changes that were happening at the time? Uh, the funding is absolutely essential. The first thing to say really is picking up on the point about military preparedness, but also the Federal Reserve Board, the Federal Reserve Act of a few years before the war started. In both instances, what you have is not just uh, the United States developing institutions and forms of political economy that service its immediate needs, and I, I agree with that point, but it's also the product of kind of long-running traditions, and there's the long-running tradition, the aversion to a, a standing army, to a professional military, that that was in some way un-American, and that needed to be uh, guarded against at all costs. The same thing about the centralization of finance. If anything, that's even stronger of an American tradition, particularly within Wilson's own Democratic Party, which there are many of these agrarian populists of like William Jennings, Brian, that name might ring a bell, very significant a figure in Wilson's administration in the early years as well. So there's long-running forces that Wilson's running up against. In terms of funding, we see an epochal change in where the United States fits on the international financial markets. Throughout American history, going back even into the colonial period, the United States had been the great black hole for capital. It just sucks in foreign investment. It's a rapidly developing economy, westward development, and so forth. There's signs that that's beginning to change, that the United States is beginning to export capital in the decades before the Great War. What the Great War does is rapidly accelerate that process. Between 1914 and 1917, the United States transitions from being a debtor nation to a creditor nation. This is important for two reasons. The first reason it's important is because it entangles the United States 
on the British and French effort in ways that it does not with the Germans. So the same dynamic we were hearing about propaganda plays out in the hard-headed world of finance. And I think that the second reason why this is a significant development is because there's no going back after 1917. There's no going back. The United States is literally invested in the cause that those investments will persist after the war. It will shape American foreign policy in the 1920s. It will shape the course of the Great Depression in the 1930s. And as a consequence, it will shape the origins of the Second World War and the Cold War institutions that developed thereafter. So this is a long running thing that shapes both the Great War itself and the long history. A very, very important thing. Whenever we talk about finance, everyone's eyes gloss over. The students, I'm used to it. They start snoozing. But let me tell you, this is really, really important. And it's really important, we know it today, to bring in the contemporary references. We're once again a great debtor nation, uh, going reverting back to a norm. This is a contentious political issue about where the United States fits on global financial markets and commodity markets. Uh, so we can well understand why it was so important to people at the time. And I would just add to this that I think that my scenario of humanitarian aid sort of pouring into Europe and this image of loans pouring into Europe, well, we should also remember a lot of this money is now coming back to the United States, and it's lifting the United States out of a recession. It's creating jobs, market for agricultural goods, that in a sense, this notion that we are also profiting from the war and the morality of that becomes an important public issue as well. And don't forget also 1913, not just the Federal Reserve created a central brain or something approximating a central brain for the financial system, but also a reduction in tariffs. The Wilson administration reducing tariffs, breaking down some of those tariff walls, opening up the economy. And for those very reasons, this is a real international moment for American economic history. In our third excerpt from the docudrama, it is just the space that you all were talking about, March of 1917, wondering whether or not uh, we should declare war. And in particular, it is the newly re-elected President Woodrow Wilson, wondering whether he should ask Congress to declare war. March 27, 1917 meeting with the president. He wondered whether he should ask Congress to declare war or state that war already exists and request the necessary means to carry it through. I advise the latter option. If he puts a declaration of war up to Congress, there might well be an acrimonious debate. I then told him how anxious I was that as a war president, he should meet the challenges in a creditable way so that when the conflict's over, his reputation and influence are not reduced and he's able to do the great work that will follow. I took the liberty to suggest to him that he might not be well suited to the immediate task, too refined, too civilized, too intellectual, too cultivated. It needs a man of coarser fiber, someone less of a philosopher to conduct a brutal, vigorous, successful war. He agreed. March 30th. Perfect weather, but Woodrow felt that he must work on his message to Congress. So we closed the door and gave orders that no one was to disturb him. We lunched alone. London. My accusation is this. 
the American embassy. He soothed the American people, encouraged them to be supine, sat them down in comfortable chairs and said, just stay there. March 31st. Woodrow has continued work on his war message. As usual, a draft in shorthand, then correcting it in a combination of shorthand and longhand, then making a fair copy on his typewriter. Meanwhile, I lightened the workload by decoding some cipher messages that had come in. To the belligerents, he was offensively condescending, conceived a vision of himself as president peacemaker. But now, at last, he's been pushed into action. Now, his big idea will be to show how he led the people into a glorious war in defense of democracy. The plain truth is, this whole wretched business has been a catalog of errors. April 1st. The message is finished. This is a man who likes to shut himself away, engage in what he calls thought. The air currents of the world never ventilate his mind, and he maintains his inactive position for as long as public sentiment allows. He's not a leader, he's not a peacemaker, he's a stubborn phrasemaker. April 2nd. Congress convened at 12 noon. When we reached the Capitol, the crowd outside was almost as large as on Inauguration Day. In the gallery, every seat was taken. Woodrow came in. Everyone rose to their feet, and my heart seemed to stop beating. He delivered the speech. There was utter silence until he pronounced the words, We will not choose the path of submission. Whereupon Chief Justice White, an ex-Confederate soldier, got up and cheered. The response from the floor and the galleries was deafening. Woodrow Wilson, the last United States president to not work with a speechwriter. He used eight words that changed American foreign policy forever. And in declaring war, changed the direction of the United States and set us on uh, the path that we are still on today. Uh, but back in, in 1917, to what extent uh, do you think the American public really believed that we were getting into war because of U-boats or because of the Zimmerman telegram? You both were talking about other, other sentiments and other things that Americans were also drawn to at the time. Well, we like to simplify our history and picking one pivotal moments where it all turns and changes, and especially something as important as a declaration of war, it's a comforting way to tell our history. So we can look at ships going down, you know, Maine gets attacked, Lusitania, Pearl Harbor, and this sort of explains very complex decisions about us fighting our wars. It's my view that the Zimmerman telegram, the resumption of unconditional submarine warfare, that these were not things that dramatically changed anybody's minds. They reaffirmed views that people already had. And the majority of people had already 
turned to favoring the Allies over Germany. But those people that had not made that transformation were also not persuaded by these events either. There were a lot of people who looked at the Zimmerman telegram who were against entering the war, who believed this was not a credible threat. There's no way Germany could make good on this. This was bluffing. And also looked at unconditional submarine warfare as aimed at stopping British shipping from the United States. and said, if we were going to punish Britain for violating international law the same way that we were punishing Germany, there would be no problem. So they weren't persuasive events, but they were just culminative events that ultimately convinced Wilson that the time to move was now, that a German victory would threaten the national security of the United States and also it was the moment at which he embraced, and I would argue that one of the things that Wilson gives us is not just nice phrases for us to repeat, but he gives us this enduring faith that we've embraced in the 20th century that war is a way to make the world a better place, that through war you can accomplish good things. And I think this has been a recurring theme that we've seen ever since the First World War. In 1917, a popular poster is Americans All. Jay, how united was the United States towards this war effort? It's a good question. It's a difficult question sometimes to answer in absence of the polling data that we have today. There is no question that the divisions which we were discussing earlier persisted. Um, now, in that march to war, in that first several months of 1917, when you have all of the, the acceleration of these events happening, which I agree, it's the cumulative effect, isn't it? It's not one thing just sets off the war. It's the cumulative effect, and it's the, how it puts those who are opposing war or intervention on the defensive, on the back foot. It's very difficult to sustain that argument over time, and it gets more difficult in early 1917. That being said, there are still divisions, you betcha. Now, if you look at the votes in Congress on Wilson's war message, they're fairly decisive. There's a, a few dissenting votes in the Senate. There's rather more in Congress and the House, but still it is a decisive vote. The opponents of intervention had really drawn the line in the sand a little bit earlier. And the local example is Senator Stone from Missouri, who was a Wilsonite. He was for Wilson in 1912, a Democrat for him in 1916, but opposes those war measures in the run-up to April 1917, and in particular, the big issue, the last sort of stand for uh, congressmen and senators of this kind was the decision to arm those merchant ships, which was, in essence, an admission that the United States would be involved in war. Now, it's very interesting, uh, Stone turns back he supports Wilson uh, in April 1917. He falls into line, but that disunity within the Democratic Party and more generally will persist. We can see it in all the legislation of once you declare war, there's so many other issues you've got to decide, taxation, finance, resource mobilization, and all of those things will be deeply contentious. One more thing to say, it's very interesting to hear that clip about the ex-Confederate uh, Supreme Court justice and that sort of cathartic moment of sectional reconciliation and how that was interpreted, or how older Americans, and I guess even younger Americans in 1917, 
would have seen what was happening through the prism of the American Civil War, which still cast such a shadow over everything that was happening in the United States. We often talk about the Spanish-American War of 1898 as that moment of reconciliation. It was interesting to hear that that was still how some Americans interpreted 1917. And I would just add on to this that, it, well, it's hard to, as you say, parse out all segments of, of public opinion because we have imperfect measures. It's important to realize that Wilson himself was concerned that there still remained a significant anti-war constituency in the United States. So let's look at some of the first things that he proposes, which is press censorship. This is something that Congress refuses to authorize, but he wants. They compromise and they have the Espionage Act in 1917, which will be, of course, strengthened dramatically in 1918 with the Sedition Act. But this idea that we will immediately have to silence those people who voted against the war, who spoke out against the war, that they will no longer be able to express those opinions, not because their opinions by themselves matter, because they may in fact influence other people as we fight a long, bloody, difficult war that people expect to take several years, that this sense that he's not 100% sure he has the country behind him, I think really is demonstrated in this immediate attempt to centralize that kind of power, which we've also not seen a government try to do since much earlier in our nation's history. In the final clip, of our docudrama, it is now April of 1917. The U.S. has just declared war, and this is Walter Hines Page, the U.S. ambassador to London. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud her boys in line. The American Embassy, London. War will invigorate us. It will wake us up and shake us up. We need this war just as much as the Germans need taking down. War will end our isolation. It will make us less promiscuously hospitable to every kind of immigrant. It will re-establish our true heritage. It will revive our manhood. It will make us a great seafaring nation, like Britain. Five or ten years from now, or sooner, alas, the dead will be forgotten. The suffering will be a mere memory. The fields will recover their bloom, and life for many will go on much as before. But America can learn from the war become greater, stronger. We can cultivate those manly qualities required in wartime. We can resolve to be true to our traditions and ancestry. We can free ourselves from our isolationist, land-lubberish thinking. Build ships, 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 and more ships. 
and still more. Troop ships, food ships, munition ships, auxiliary ships, wooden ships, steel ships, little ships, big ships, ships without number. We can sail them to the ends of the oceans and dominate the world, both in trade and in political ideology. But as well as ships, as well as expeditionary forces and loans to the Allies at a low rate of interest, we must make the moral issue clear. We speak of the wrongs that have been done to us, but injury has also been done to our ideals. If we value democracy in the world, this is the chance to further it. No more dreams about peace and conferences and leagues for the enforcing of peace and other intellectual diversions. This is war, and we must fight it in earnest. Could one of you talk about the U.S. Navy and its uh, contribution? Well, I'm actually writing a book about shipping lines, so this is fortuitous. <laughs> and I'm just going to cut to the chase. The American shipping industry was a midget in this time. Now, it had actually grown uh, rather quickly in the first decades of the 20th century, but it's a real concern. It's a common concern. He'd still be disappointed to look at the historic ledger books to know that uh, half of the U.S. troops that were sent to France in 1917, 1918 went on British ships. So I think that's what he's getting at. The other thing to note about this, that masculine language and how a war would somehow revitalize a flagging American manhood. This is the time, of course, of the, the apogee of the suffragette movement. Women are going to get the constitutional amendment to vote uh, in 1920. This is not just an American uh, phenomenon. This is happening around the world. It's in particular also happening in Britain at much the same time. So I think his comments addressed that. Let me make one more point. We often think about wars, especially in this country, in the United States, as accelerators of social progress. I think that's rooted in our uh, vision of the Civil War, uh, which ended slavery and which gave African Americans the constitutional basics of civil rights, though it would take a long time to fulfill that vision. We think of that because of the Second World War, which really facilitated social change. You want to know how the civil rights movement succeeds in the 1950s and 60s? You have got to start somewhere in the Second World War. I wonder if the First World War actually provides the alternative lesson that war can accelerate social regression or to not put a value on it. It can enforce and, and embolden those who oppose um, the expansion of rights. What are the great legacies of the First World War? Immigration restriction in 1921, uh, the emergence of uh, white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, their apogee is in the 1920s, not after the Civil War, the Red Scare of 1919-1920, that anti-communist hysteria. That's all a product of those sort of passions that we just heard. That's all linked to the First World War. Wars accelerate change regardless of which direction they're moving. I don't think war does anything. I think people in war do things. And it's interesting that the movements that you, you mentioned, female suffrage, the civil rights movement, 
you could think a little bit about conscientious objection and even the idea of have, having a right to object to serve in the military based on principle rather than your religious affiliation. These are all three movements that are huge during the First World War, and these are movements that in many ways in the environment that we were talking about earlier uh, could have easily just disappeared because mm. they were dissenters, not necessarily always from the purpose of fighting the war, but certainly from the idea that they should be setting their special grievances aside and only yeah. be thinking about the war. And in fact, many of these activists, what you see happening during the war is that they see in war an opportunity to strategize in different way and also to recruit new members into their organizations who might not have seen that the, the moment is now for us actually to move on these issues. So I think that in some ways, everything you said is obviously completely true about the regression in terms of the overall uh, tenor of the country when it comes to certain rights. But if we think about the critical organizations like the NAACP that will be so critical throughout the 20th century, in 1909, the NAACP is a brand new organization. It's tiny, but it's the first world war that really gives it a national presence and it's able to recruit soldiers and activists and many uh, different communities into its ranks. And so it's always interesting to think about the way that people are responding to war, which in my mind really determines what direction that war says, because we can look at World War II as a great moment eventually, but then what about Japanese-American internment? So there's always going to be these conflicting yeah. uh, ideals. But what I also wanted to say was to think a little bit about how America is raising this military. We're raising the military primarily through conscription. We don't call it conscription, we call it selective service. And what I was thinking about with that quote was this idea that war elevates the moral tenor of the country because suddenly we have another purpose uh, to commit ourselves to. And I think through conscription and through selective service, which in many ways argues that the entire nation is subject to call from the government to serve the nation in time of war. And this sense of, you maybe don't even really have to think anymore about do you support or not support the war? Do you support America? Do you support your responsibility as a citizen? It's this kind of almost civic religion that gets developed during the war that people find very appealing. And one of the great ironies of the First World War and all these social changes that we're referring to, and regardless of how they play out, is how quick the United States' experience of the, of the First World War is relative to the European experience since 1914. So there's a great acceleration of change, but there's not necessarily the resolution that you would see in some of the European countries and also in, in the other war experiences of the United States. Now, as individuals, that's in part how this museum exists. Uh, there are all of these Du Bois who went overseas and many of them sent back souvenirs to their loved ones. They brought back with them the trappings of being a doughboy, uh, some serving uh, inside the United States, but again, many serving overseas and, and from those experiences. How were Americans received in Europe and by the Europeans? Well, I think in France, which is where the majority of, of soldiers went, they were seen as, as saviors. They were certainly seen as an infusion of numbers and energy and enthusiasm and material abundance that was going to be, in many respects, the decisive factor in terms of the Allied victory. So 
There's no doubt that American soldiers felt welcomed in France. I'm not saying they didn't have some disagreements, but they certainly uh, felt welcomed by French civilians, by French soldiers. And I think that that regard became mutual over time. In the beginning, American soldiers were trained to look with disdain at the Europeans, that they had they had just been fighting defensively, that they had lost their elan, that they didn't know how to win the war. But if you look at the individual doughboy and their experiences with French and British soldiers, they'll tell you a completely different story where they learn to really respect what the Allied armies had accomplished. And what I find interesting in studying the American soldier experience, which I've done for quite a long time, is that when you look at the way that the commanders will talk about the war afterwards, they are the ones primarily saying America won this war. If you look at the Doughboys themselves when they write those letters home in, on, on November 11th or on November 12th, when they can finally tell their families what they had been through because the censorship was lifted, they talk about it as the way we like as a historians talk about it now, which is a coalition victory, that we all played our part, that this, that we were part of a great victory, not solely responsible for it. The end of the First World War really sees a, a burst of foreign, especially European, but not just European, I would say global interest in the United States, fascination. What is this massive country that is able to mobilize such power on such short notice? What does the president of this country mean when he issues 14 points? What does self-determination uh, mean? What does it mean for those living within European empires, within colonial uh, systems in the 1920s? And of course, all of the words of Wilson, the ideas of Wilson and of the United States and its history, the genie is really out of the bottle uh, after the First World War. It might have been out of the bottle even earlier, but it is a burst of fascination and this propels the United States or lays the foundation for some of its future cultural and, and soft power, but also some of the disappointment that foreign observers often have with the United States, the idea that it hasn't always lived up to its ideals, that Wilson didn't stand by all of his 14 points at the peace treaty um, in Versailles and so forth. So it's a really important moment for the United States and its visibility around the world. And one more thing is, of course, this is just the dawn of technological innovation, Hollywood cinema, all of these things are going to follow on the heels of the story that we've just told and are really important for how the United States relates to foreign peoples thereafter. I've been doing a lot of the question asking this evening, and I would invite you uh, to come down and ask some questions of anyone on the panel in regards to our conversations. This is for uh, Professor Sexton. The other professor talked about the military deployments and that way the military was right size and correctly deployed for its roles prior to the war. Professor Sexton, what about our foreign service, our diplomatic corps? Do you think it was correctly deployed? Did it have the right people in the right capitals? And as we saw the U.S. military change and get ready 1718, did our diplomatic corps do the same as, as countries like Japan get more important than they were before the war? Uh, that, it's a fantastic question about America's foreign service, its diplomatic corps. Now, traditionally, the United States had had a, a very inept Foreign Service. It had had a very small State Department. Uh, there's a great story in the 1890s about the longest serving clerk in the State Department was bicycling down the, the road in Washington, D.C., and one observer looked to another and said, there goes our State Department right now, which is about 
the size uh, and the power of it. Now, there are uh, reforms, very important reforms in the late 19th century and again in the early 20th, uh, which professionalize the Foreign Service, um, which bring some kind of administrative oversight regulation to it. So I would say um, the story mirrors more or less what we're hearing about the military. It's better, it's expanded, certainly since 1898. It does its job better. Is it ready? Is it prepared in this period um, to take on a much larger responsibility as it will have to in the mid 20th century? Probably not. But let me give you one more thing on this, and that is a statistic I just happened to read, totally unrelated to this, yesterday about American schools teaching foreign languages. And the data I had was from 1915 versus 1975, the height of the Cold War. You'd think that the American schools were teaching uh, more foreign languages. They were teaching less than half of the foreign languages that they were in 1915. So there was an infrastructure in place through the education system, also linked to immigration and those lingering ties that we were hearing about that made the United States well geared to assume those responsibilities, but it wasn't quite ready yet. My question relates to my understanding, which I believe is correct, that at the moment we declared war, it was not yet a foregone conclusion that we would send ground troops to Europe that we could have made it simply an economic war, we could have made it a naval war, and that at some point shortly after the declaration of war, somebody made the decision that we would send ground troops to Europe, which made all the difference. And I'd like to hear, if my understanding is correct, how did this come about and was there opposition to it? Thank you. This was a really short-lived notion that we were only going to perhaps just accelerate our financial and material aid and not really have to raise significant number of, of troops to go. The first people to dissuade us of this were our new allies, France and Britain, that made it very clear right from the beginning that not only did they expect large numbers of Americans to come, but they actually hoped to take control of them, sort of amalgamate them into the pre-existing forces so that they could get to the battlefield even faster. And the other important element was the notion that if Wilson did not take the reins, so to speak, in terms of controlling the process of creating this army, there were going to be some crazy volunteers like Theodore Roosevelt, who, you know, sort of was negotiating on the side his own deal to rage a regiment and, you know, have one last go at glory in terms of leaving men on the battlefield. So there was also sort of a political reality here. I also do believe that some of those comments by congressmen were a little disingenuous, that they were also ways to appease people who would say, well, yes, of course America should defeat Germany, but I don't want to go fight in France. And so I think that some of that, too, was a little bit of political cover for people. Well, thank you very much, and thanks uh, for the discussion this evening. I don't understand the U.S. neutrality. And I don't think it was a neutrality. When I look at Wilson, uh, you know, from 1914 all the way through to 1917, he supported the British blockade. And the British blockade basically was a starvation blockade of Germany. They starved Germany. And they starved Germany after the First World War 
for about six months after the First World War, you still had the blockade going on. So I, my question is, with all the rhetoric of Wilson, how neutral was he? I agree, and of course, that the, the, the point that you just made very eloquently, very powerfully, was a point made by many Americans at the time, uh, many within uh, Wilson's own political party, and indeed even within his own cabinet. So I agree with, with you. So maybe then the question gets reframed. If Wilson is inclined, and if American kind of strategic thinkers are inclined that Britain's in their interest, why don't they move more quickly? The first thing is, I'm not sure there's absolutely as clear-cut decided that that's the right thing to do, though it might be right to align with Britain. Second point I would just say is to return to the domestic political constraints. Um, one thing that we, we didn't talk about today but is very important is that deep tradition of Anglophobia in the United States, particularly within Wilson's own party. This is the party of the Irish Americans who hate England. It's not just from the Irish, I should say. It's particularly from that agrarian populist wing of his party. This is a great problem. So it takes time to, to work those things through. And I think that inconsistency is, in a sense, also an American tradition. So, for example, we could think about why is there no outrage about the starvation that's going on in Germany and think back to the propaganda and you don't have the same sort of visual you know, personal connection that people are able to make to that suffering because that, that imagery is not being distributed in the United States. But you could also point to groups like, uh, I've read African-American newspapers in 1915 and 1916, and they're saying, well, yes, it is terrible what is happening to Belgium, women and children. But it was also terrible what Belgium did in the Congo. And where was all the outrage and all the humanitarian aid when those stories were coming back to the United States? So the idea of calling out Americans for their inconsistency in terms of their application of these principles and who they decide is the villain and who they decide is the victim, I think that there is many conversations going on in America during the period of neutrality which bear out exactly what you said. People were calling Wilson out on, on exactly those, those issues and some others as well. Wilson was definitely an intellectual, an academic uh, historian who had written widely. As a historian, he must have understood the great cultural and historical differences in Europe among the peoples and the demographics of Europe where so many ethnic and linguistic groups lived side by side and were interwoven within small geographical areas. What did he really hope to accomplish, you think, with the pinning of the 14 points? Well, I think that in the 14 points, the, the context in, or the historical moment at which it's written is important to understand. The 14 points can be read as an appeal to Russia to stay in the war. When you think about sections we tend not to read, like the whole preamble, which it really talks as much about Russia as anything, it can be seen as an overture to Germany about this can be a reasonable peace, that this is not a peace to destroy you. Um, but I think that it can also be seen as an appeal to many of these immigrant groups within the United States who have now developed their own interests in the outcome of this war. So even within the United States, the idea that 
there will be new uh, opportunities for nationalities, for example, within the Austro-Hungarian Empire to now have independence. These are appealing concepts. I think that in lots of respects, he's thinking in these sort of larger political terms rather than trying to have the 14 points be a specific blueprint for what the piece will look like. Because when he gets to Versailles, think of the inquiry. He brings along with him teams of academics, of experts, and all of those things that you mentioned, who really are going to dig deep and hammer out the details. And he's not just an academic, he's a progressive. He has that progressive faith and expertise that there is data that you could find that could solve problems that maybe just don't have those kinds of answers. So the 14 points is a, a fantastic document because there's so many different ways that you can interpret what Wilson is really trying to accomplish. And I would argue that redrawing the map of Europe is really maybe the, the least important goal that he has in crafting that document. I agree with all of that. I, I just I pose one sort of issue here. We tend to think of Wilson in large part because we call it the Wilsonian century and we, we link him with what happens thereafter and on all the problems to which you refer about the reconfiguration of the geopolitical chessboard um, in the mid-20th century. We think of Wilson as forward-looking. There is also a backward-looking element of Wilson uh, to your question about a historian, someone who, who takes lots of information in the past. Who's one of his greatest heroes? A little known fact, one of his greatest heroes is William Gladstone, the great prime minister from Britain in the late 19th century. He has a little picture of him above his desk in Princeton, uh, I believe. And he's looking back to what is a simpler time as well as anticipating a more complex time. He's looking back to a few fundamentals of what makes an international system work, what's worked in the past, and he thinks open markets, some kind of representative government, avoiding these aristocratic cliques that are inclined to warmongering and warfare, all the problems that have been made clear since 1914. So he's also drawing from a, a tradition in the past, and it's not just an American tradition, it's very much a transatlantic liberal tradition. So I think we have to remember Wilson in his time. We mustn't project him too far forward because the world is going to change in ways that Wilson doesn't anticipate, frankly, in ways that Wilson himself would not have been comfortable with. I'm curious, uh, Dr. Keene, you mentioned that the Doughboys, when they arrived in France, were widely received as uh, liberators. They were welcomed with open arms. My understanding is that there was a lot of debate as to whether they would be introduced into the conflict as reinforcements to fill in gaps on the line, or whether they would be introduced as separate regiments and separate units under US command. Yep. And I'm wondering, with that conflict over how they would be introduced into the conflict itself, does it say something about the US relationship? Does it say something about the question of national pride? Does it say more about the pride of the generals themselves who um, are debating this? And how does it complicate that question of the degree to which the open-armed embrace uh, happened when they arrived? That's a great question. I think you sort of laid out a lot of the, the elements of that debate in terms of uh, what to do with American soldiers. So at the high levels, you have this debate going on with the generals, and Pershing is, is going to steadfastly stand by the principle that uh, American army needs to be American-led, it needs to fight in American sector, 
this is going to be important for Woodrow Wilson to be able to demonstrate a clear contribution of America to the victory, and this will help him at the peace table sort of convince others that he has a right to really ha have a major say in the peace. So Pershing will do that except when he doesn't do that. And <laughs> what I mean by that is that the war takes on some momentum of its own. Yes, in principle, Amer the American army will remain independent, yet Every American soldier, except those who arrive at the very, very end, will spend a significant amount of time training with the French and British Army. So right away, there's a certain amount of amalgamation. Nearly every American soldier before September 1918 has their first experience in line alongside French and British soldiers. The major American battles in the fall of 1918 are coalition battles. They go into battle with French support. Four African-American regiments spend the entire war embedded in the French army. I could go on and on. There is, there is plenty of moments at which uh, Pershing has to compromise this principle, both because of what's happening on the battlefield and the inability of him, his army, really to fully train its force in 1918. Now, his imaginings are that the major battles will come in 1919 and 1920, by which point he expects to be up to speed on these things and able to fully operate independently. But as we know, the war ends before the American army ever gets to that point. Just maybe end with one thing on this, is that um, the United States, that this issue of how is it going to relate, both in terms of military command structure, but also how is it going to relate politically and, and diplomatically to its new war allies, it is revealing that the United States calls itself not an ally, yeah. but an associate power. It's an associate power, so it's part of, but not <laughs> quite. Um, very revealing contrast to the Second World War. So it, it really does lend some credence to this idea of the World War I is that kind of mile marker on the road to something uh, that happens later when the United States not only commits itself to allies, but takes leadership in so doing. And there's ambivalence about how to do so. Um, not in the case of Pershing, obviously. He wants autonomy, uh, military autonomy. But I think the key point is, doesn't he think that he's going to be doing this in 1919? As she said, the, no one thinks the war is going to end, at least the American military, as soon as it does. Thank you all so very much for being here. Have a good night. Is it Hindenburg or Joffre who will wear a hero's crown? Just like Washington when the European war is done. In my mind, there's just one hero Woodrow Wilson.